By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello and welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded, the podcast that tackles the latest trends shaping the world of emerging markets. I'm your host for today, Shireen Mohammadi from Moody's Global Research Team, coming to you from New York. Today, we'll tackle two important issues for emerging markets, rising food prices and deteriorating global financial conditions. Food prices have been rising sharply since the start of the pandemic driven by supply chain disruptions, rising shipping costs, poor growing conditions, and rising demand. Now, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is adding further to these pressures. The Food and Agriculture Organization's latest food price index showed that world food prices had reached a record high in real terms in February. While these price rises will be felt worldwide, the brunt will fall on emerging and frontier markets, where spending on food typically makes up a much larger share of household budgets than in advanced economies. To talk about which regions are most exposed to rising food prices, we'll be joined in the first segment of today's show by Mikhail Gondrand from our sovereign team in London. In the second segment, we'll be joined by one of the co-hosts of this podcast, Thaddeus Bess from the Global Emerging Markets team in London to discuss how financial conditions are evolving for emerging markets amid tightening U.S. monetary policy and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and why we think emerging markets are now less vulnerable to a sudden stop in capital flows than in the past. But first, let's turn to Mikhail to talk about rising food prices. Mikhail, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sharon. Happy to be here. Mikhail, food prices were rising even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and now we've seen Ukraine announce that it'll block all wheat exports to maintain enough food for domestic demand. How significant will this military conflict be for global food prices, and which countries are most exposed to the shock in wheat supplies? Global food prices are currently at a record high, and as you alluded to, this is a shock that has been building up for some time. Rising food prices was a trend which really took hold throughout 2021 and which looked likely to persist even before the outbreak of the military conflict. But the Russian military invasion of Ukraine has, of course, made this worse. Russia and Ukraine are both significant wheat producers. They represent more than a quarter of global wheat exports. Russia and Belarus are also very important in the global supply of fertilizers. Belarus is already subject to Western sanctions, which have severely restricted its exports. So the disruption of food supplies from these countries is likely to further compound the inflationary pressures. We've seen in recent weeks a sharp spike in prices for commodities like wheat, but also sunflower oil and corn, and really as a reflection of those supply risks. Now, if we focus only on wheat for a moment, Ukraine and Russia are direct and very important suppliers of wheat for many emerging markets, particularly across the Middle East and North Africa where wheat is also very important in the local diet. And some of those Middle East and North African countries are really at the front line of the shock created by the Black Sea supply disruptions. Egypt is, for instance, the world's largest importer of wheat. Close to 90% of its wheat imports come from Ukraine and Russia. Are there any regions in particular that are more exposed to the food price shock? So high food prices are really a global phenomenon. 
ultimately, the shock is likely to affect all regions and all emerging and frontier markets to some extent. But I would focus first and foremost on the Middle East and Africa regions. There's good reasons for that. These are regions which are particularly vulnerable to food insecurity, particularly dependent on food imports. They include a large number of low-income countries where food accounts for a large share of household consumption. There's been rapid population growth in the past decades, and that has increased challenges around issues like water sustainability and food security. We also see a recurrent exposure to droughts and to climate shocks. And droughts are currently ongoing in large parts of the African continent, including Angola, Morocco, and across the Horn of Africa. That will, of course, compound the effects of the current shock. What are the credit transmission channels of higher food prices to sovereigns? In other words, how does higher food prices affect sovereign creditworthiness? It's a very good question. Uh, it's important to think of the various channels for which the shock will have an impact. At the macro level, high food prices will weigh on consumption, on the balance of payments, and in some cases on government finances. They're likely to exacerbate macroeconomic challenges that might have already been there. They're also likely to widen fiscal and current account deficits. We expect global food price inflation to pass through to higher domestic prices in most cases, eroding real incomes. But of course, um, rising prices and rising food insecurity are also likely to increase social and political risks. There was a period between 2007 and 2012 when the impact of high price volatility, in some cases severe food shortages, this really translated into numerous food riots across many regions, affecting almost 40 countries. And in our view, countries with high food import dependency, weak governance frameworks, and with already negative exposure to social risks are likely to be most at risk in that respect. Looking across Africa and the Middle East, the regions you mentioned were most exposed. Are there countries that stand out? Well, given relatively low per capita incomes, food is a high share of most Middle Eastern and African countries' household spending and consumer price baskets. It's more than 50% in some countries, including Nigeria and Ethiopia. And so it is likely to be a major contributor to headline inflation and to the erosion of real incomes. Indeed, we're already seeing food inflation rates of more than 20% across several countries in Sub-Saharan Africa including Angola and Nigeria. The current account implications are also evident for net food importers, where high global prices essentially are terms of trade shock, which will widen the trade deficit. Import dependency for cereal grain and other food commodities, as I mentioned, is very high across the two regions. And looking more into the details, food imports make up a large share of GDP in many countries across the Middle East and Africa. More than 8% of GDP in countries like Jordan, Mauritius, and Namibia, amongst others. Now, food subsidies are one of the ways that governments can mitigate the impact of higher food prices on their population. But that, of course, has fiscal implications. Where do you see this materializing? This is a particular focus across North Africa where food subsidy programs are an important element of the social contracts across the region. In uh, Tunisia, which is already subject to fairly large fiscal and external imbalances and very tight funding conditions, it's interesting the, the amount allocated for food subsidies in the budget this year 
actually exceeds that of energy subsidies. Subsidy programs are also present in Morocco and of course in Egypt, which has a long and famous history of heavily subsidized bread prices. But I think you also need to think of government support in the broad sense. For instance, Senegal has an agricultural support program which subsidizes fertilizers and seeds and is therefore exposed to rising prices for those agricultural inputs. Mikhail, thank you for sharing your insights with us here today. Thank you. Now let's turn to you, Thaddeus, to talk about the latest developments in emerging market financial conditions. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Sharon. Now, Thaddeus, you've just published the flagship EM Financial Conditions Monitor, which is based on Moody's Financial Conditions Indicator. So first, could you tell us what this indicator is and what it tries to capture? Sure. So the EM Financial Conditions Indicator is a proprietary indicator, which is a monthly composite of measures of financial and economic activity, which we run across the nine largest EM economies, so Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, China, India, Indonesia, Russia, Turkey, and South Africa. And collectively, these economies represented almost three quarters of emerging market GDP and just over three quarters of private sector eurobond issuance last year. And each of these countries' financial conditions indicators is a combination of individual components which collectively capture financial conditions. So these components can be grouped into four broad categories, which are the bond markets, so looking at sovereign spreads, equity markets, where we look at things like valuations and volatility, macroeconomic fundamentals, where we review forward-looking indicators like household expectations and purchasing managers indices, and money and portfolio flows. And together, these give us a holistic overview of financial conditions across major emerging markets. And what do the latest FCI data tell us? So what we can see is that we're entering a period where financial conditions are starting to tighten again for emerging markets after a relatively benign period. So if we think back to the outbreak of the pandemic in 2020, we saw really severe tightening of financial conditions. But quite quickly, what we saw is that a combination of extraordinary central bank monetary easing and fiscal support provided by the governments meant that by the start of 2021, financial conditions had basically improved to pretty much where they were before the pandemic hit. And that continued to improve over the course of 2021. Now, what we've seen over the last few months is that financial conditions have started to tighten. And that tightening has predominantly been driven by deterioration in EM capital markets, both in the equity market volatility and also in sovereign bond spreads to some extent. And more recently, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has driven a further deterioration in financial conditions. So it's important to note that the deterioration that we saw last month is mainly driven by financial conditions in Russia. And we haven't seen that much direct transmission to the rest of emerging markets yet. That's not to say we don't expect any contagion. You know, of course, we can see this significant inflationary shock from the, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is already very visible in food and energy inflation. And of course, emerging markets will be disproportionately affected and more likely to see greater monetary tightening as a consequence. But this will take more time to feed through into financial conditions. Now, we talked earlier to Mikhail about rising food prices, but we're likely to see higher prices more broadly too, given higher oil and other commodity prices. Can you explain to us what the credit implications of higher overall inflation are likely to be for emerging markets? So the key challenge for emerging markets is that many of them are still lagging behind advanced economies in this cycle. So they're still facing much more economic disruption from COVID due to lower vaccination rates and more constrained healthcare facilities. Uh, and many, although not all, are facing great economic scarring and, in most cases, slower growth than advanced economies. You know, at the same time, the supply-side inflationary shocks that we're seeing at the moment will have an outsized impact on emerging markets. 
because food and fuel comprise a greater share of the consumer basket in these countries. And what we're going to see is that this will create a growing dilemma for EM central banks, some of which are already facing inflation that is at or above target, while growth is weak and potentially about to be undermined by a further shock to household purchasing power. And are there any major EMs that stand out besides Russia, which is at the heart of this military conflict? So some of the usual suspects emerge. Turkey, for example, was already experiencing very high inflation due to its unorthodox monetary policy mix and is now facing an additional shock from the higher food and in particular oil prices, given that it's a major net oil importer. We're also watching countries which have adopted pretty accommodative monetary policy stances, but are now starting to see inflation reaching levels that might start to challenge those stances. So India is a good example here. You know, rates have been kept on hold, but inflation has just surpassed the top end of the central bank's target range last month. And that is going to gradually increase the pressure on the central bank to adopt a more hawkish monetary policy over the course of this year. Amid this global inflationary shock from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the U.S. Fed has now embarked on its first rate hike cycle since 2018. What does this mean for EMs? So we typically see emerging markets as more exposed than advanced economies to the tightening of U.S. monetary policy. Inflation was already at or above target in most large emerging market countries, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what we expect is that rising interest rates will act as a drag on growth at a time when debt levels across emerging market governments, households, financial and non-financial corporates are very elevated. Now, as most emerging market central banks will still align with, or in many cases, remain ahead of the Fed's tightening cycle, higher US rates will coincide with both higher US dollar and you know, ultimately higher local currency borrowing costs for emerging markets. So why do we think emerging markets are less vulnerable now to a sudden stop in capital flows than they were in the past? So there are several interesting structural trends that have taken place. The first is that the currency composition of emerging market government debt burdens has shifted much more towards local currency borrowing. So more than 95% of the increase in emerging market debt since the end of 2019 has been issued in local currency bonds. Second, what we see is that emerging markets have become less reliant on foreign investors as buyers of their local currency debt. And thirdly, and this is quite interesting, is that since the outset of the pandemic, several emerging market central banks have successfully experimented with quantitative easing programs, including branching out into the corporate bond space in some cases, which has helped to provide liquidity and stability to the secondary markets during periods of heightened volatility. Okay, so from what I'm hearing, it sounds like a relatively benign scenario for emerging market financial conditions. Well, compared to the pandemic, we're not witnessing a deterioration in emerging market financial conditions that are as broad-based. I think that's fair to say. And it's true we've seen more limited contagion from Russia to Ukraine through the financial market channels. So, you know, we see that sovereign spreads, while they've widened a bit, have remained relatively stable and emerging market effects too. And indeed, in some cases, we've seen emerging market currencies even strengthening against the dollar in recent months. At the same time, however, I don't want to downplay the significance of the impact that will ultimately be felt through the higher inflation that I referred to earlier, emanating you know, in part from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also from the supply side shocks that were triggered by the pandemic. And of course, potentially the need for much tighter monetary policy over the course of this year and the subsequent tightening effect that that will have on emerging market financial conditions as a consequence. So I think the bottom line is we do expect to see emerging market financial conditions continue to tighten 
over the course of this year. But that tightening is likely to be more gradual than the very severe tightening that we saw at the outset of the pandemic. Makes sense. Thaddeus, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Sharon. To read more about these research topics and to keep up to speed with our latest views across all emerging markets, you can visit our dedicated Emerging Markets Hub for the very latest research, podcasts, and interactive webinars at moody's.com slash emerging markets. You can also subscribe to Moody's Talks Emerging Markets Decoded on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. And please do share your reviews, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for joining us.